Getting Better Healthcare is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our healthcare system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better healthcare and a better healthcare system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Well, on today's show, we're continuing our conversation from last week with Dr. Norton Hadler. We've been discussing how there are many procedures that you can have done, many medicines that you can take. It's really a lot of miracles, but the question is, do they change important outcomes? Do we live longer? Dr. Hadler's written about this extensively. His most recent book is Rethinking Aging, Growing Old and Living Well in an Overtreated Society. Dr. Hadler, thank you again for continuing this conversation. So are, are there a couple things that are common that do work so that we don't seem like nihilists about all of No, we're not nihilists. This is the difference between rational and rationing. This is not nihilism. This is you. Our our mission and our ministry is to be wise resources for informed medical decision making. Yeah. So, but but, but surely there must be something good in medicine. There are some procedures, some medicines that that are valuable that we should. Well, you're a dermatologist and I'm a rheumatologist, and we both have interventions that are, that are not only do they seem to work, but actually have withstood tests of efficacy. We have infectious disease interventions that have withstood tests of efficacy. We have surgical interventions that have withstood tests of efficacy. No, there, there, um, there's much that we do and uh, much that we could do better. So I, but but I would I would submit that about sixty percent of the so-called healthcare dollar is a scam. It is devoted to an unconscionable administrative overhead, and it is devoted to expensive interventions for which the science says there is no benefit to be accrued to the patient. So some of the things that are beneficial within, say, rheumatology. Um, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to, or methotrexate we, we or biologics? Have, um, uh, actually do have efficacy data on non-steroidal anti they're all, they're all the same level of efficacy and the same level of toxicity as aspirin. We have uh, some data for some of the anti-rheumatic drugs that are specific for use in rheumatic diseases. Uh, we have a... a Newer generations of drugs, some of which actually represent important advances, but all of this is informed by efficacy trials. So I, I wish I had a magic bullet. I don't have a magic bullet for systemic rheumatic diseases, but I do have enough information so that I can inform my patient so that my patient can make a rational and reasoned 
decision, whereas we were discussing episode, we were discussing interventions that if the patient were adequately informed, uh, one really rational decision would be no thank you. Yeah. So some of the common things that I've heard talked about who, that fall into that latter category of maybe no thank you that are widely used are things like statins, yeah, some prostate scan, cancer screening. Well, statins are, are treating a surrogate measure, but it's not a very good surrogate measure of the risk of coronary artery disease, bad outcomes. Cholesterol is a risk factor, but it's not that impressive a risk factor. The most important uh, truth is that if you've not had a heart attack so that you're an otherwise well person, doing anything to your cholesterol in trials that are designed to show that you're better off. Doing anything to your cholesterol cannot be shown to do anything important for you. So that being the case, you have to ask up front before you let anyone measure your cholesterol, what are you going to do with that information? If the answer is, if it's so-called high, which is usually defined by a committee, uh, and you want to lower it, will I be better off? And the answer is, we have tried, but we cannot show that there's any meaningful benefit to accrue from lowering the, lowering the cholesterol of a well human being who doesn't have an extraordinary family history and doesn't have a genetic disease of cholesterol metabolism. Therefore, I've never let anybody test my cholesterol. I don't want to know. Yes, I had it checked, and they told me if I got it down to under a 200 that, on average, I could expect to live three months longer in the well, nursing home. that's actually an extrapolation. Um, they're, they're, uh, we, we, have, we have absolutely no real good data to say that. Uh, we do have some data if you've already had a heart attack. Then you've declared yourself at a higher risk, and it's easier to show, not very easy, but easier to show some benefit from lowering your cholesterol. But most of those nomograms are extrapolated, and they're extrapolated from secondary prevention. Has, uh, has your medical doctor asked you to get your prostate checked? Well, they, they're, um, <laughs> doctors know better than to ask me to do that without <laughs> having a long discussion on, on whether or not it would advantage me. I would never let anybody do a PSA on me. It's not that screening is a bad idea. Screening is a wonderful idea. Wouldn't it be nice if we could pick up disease before the patient knew it and do something so that the patient never gets the disease? That's a wonderful, that's a, a mantra and a, something that we all ought to applaud. But it's an exceedingly demanding exercise. And, and you never, ever want to be screened unless the test is accurate, the disease is important, and we can do something about it. The PSA actually has real problems by all criteria. First of all, there are lots of false positives of the PSA, and it leads to biopsies, which are exceedingly hard to interpret. But the fact with prostate cancer is any man my age, any man over age 60, is likely, has, likely has prostate cancer. Any man over 70 certainly has prostate cancer. So the screening test has a another wrinkle to it. It's not to find whether or not I have prostate cancer. I'll assume I have prostate cancer. Uh, it's to, the question I want to know is, will I die with it or will I die from it? Uh, I will die, and hopefully I will die at the species limit sometime when I'm an octogenarian. And I actually don't care what kills me once I make it to species longevity. Uh, 
longest it's been a great journey, and the passage is comforting. But, but uh, So I don't care if I die with prostate cancer. I care if I die before my time from it, and the tests that follow from an elevated PSA are terrible at finding the person who's going to die before his time from it. So what you're asking me is, do I want to have my prostate removed just to be sure or to reduce dramatically the likelihood that I will have prostate cancer? Not that I will die from it, but that I will have it. And the answer is, well, that's surgery. I'm not keen on surgery. I don't think that's fun. But that surgery has a fairly high complication rate in that about 30% of men who have had this new-age prostatectomy will be impotent. About half of them will say that that bothers them, and some of them will be on pills for their impotence. That's not a very appealing prospect for me. But the most dissuasive prospect is about 15% of men, and I, you know, no matter who's doing it, no matter what they tell you, that's not a bad number, will be, imp- will be incontinent. And the idea that I'll spend time wearing diapers is um, not appealing at all. So that before I'll let you do that, I need some trade-off. And if you tell me that you can't assure me that by running the risk of incontinence and impotence, I will have done something wonderful. I will have avoided dying before my time from prostate cancer. If you can't tell me that, I don't want the PSA. That sounds like a, a very sensible approach. Well, you, you know, earlier on, uh, I said we get back to this point that 80% of our mortal hazard isn't related to these medical technologies. And you also raised this idea that we're all going to die and uh, the passage of life should be comforting. It it seems like an excessive um, focus on screening and nervousness and trying to, you know, maintain perfect um, health and well-being forever through medical technology may be counterproductive. Yeah, it, it, it's called medicalization. And uh, we are a, a dramatically and sadly medicalized society uh, when we ought to be celebrating I mean, it, it, we, this is the first time in the history of the world that a birth cohort could hit age 60 and legitimately wonder what they want to do with the next 25 years. They can't legitimately wonder what they want to do with the next 30 years. Now, that's a wonderful thing, and you have to step back and say, who in the birth cohort can't say that at age 60? Uh, because everyone will die of something. That's called all-cause mortality. I wrote a paper years back called Hadler's Law of Therapeutic Dynamics, and law number one is the death rate is one per person. <laughs> and now we know what the best we can do in, in the 21st century, or at least at the start of the 21st century, is someplace in the 80s. And, and if you um, live in, a, in a, a social context where you feel disadvantaged, meaning um, the measures are enormous, there, there are, and, and they're covariates, they all relate to one another. But you, feeling disadvantaged isn't just money. It has to do with job satisfaction. It has to do with 
your income level relative to others in your community, uh, the more you feel disadvantaged, the sooner you die. So those people who are in the lower socioeconomic status defined broadly uh, lose about seven years on this planet compared to the people who feel advantaged. Uh, this is dramatic, by the way. Uh, you can go state by state and look at the distance between the lowest quintile of socioeconomic status and the highest. And the bigger the distance, the sooner the lowest dies. So the lowest quintile in the state of North Carolina is, um, has much more purchasing power than the lowest quintile in Greece, for example. But the lowest quintile in Greece lives longer, and it has nothing to do with olive oil. It has to do with this notion of social epidemiology. You can do this in Los Angeles neighborhood by neighborhood. You can do it state by state. You can, you can even show uh, very interesting influences over time. For example, longevity in Russia went down 10 years within a decade of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it had nothing to do with health-adverse behaviors because they already had maximum gut-butt ratios, and they all smoked, and they all drank, and they all ate things that were not supposed to eat. And it didn't matter. As soon as they had a society in chaos, they, they had a major and easy-to-measure decrease in, in um, longevity. And there are other studies like that that are quite fascinating. One was orchestrated out of UNC, where a large population of people around the country have been followed for a long time, sort of like the Framingham study, looking very much at risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And they can find the usual suspects, you know, the cholesterol story, which, as I mentioned, is a risk factor but not dramatic. And in that study, they started to ask socioeconomic status questions, and, of course, they're far more powerful predictors of longevity than anything such as cholesterol. And then I asked the next question, what happens if you're born in a low socioeconomic status quintile and you move up? During the, because these are cohort studies that have been going on for decades. So what happens if you're born poor and you attain a higher socioeconomic status through the course of living? And the answer is your longevity improves, but you never quite catch up. So these are very powerful influences. In fact, I could tell you what is probably one of the most lethal events that we've come across in the structure of society, short of HIV, AIDS, and going to war. And one of the most lethal events... Is it divorce? Is, no, it's downsizing. Downsizing. Yeah, it's very easy to measure. Not only that, though, the people who are downsized and it may not be true for Generation X and Y. It may actually be my generation and the boomers. By the way, I take you through all of this in the new book, Rethinking Aging, including where the data sets are and how, the, how we know about this. But uh, we're not sure about the younger generations. They're used to a chaotic workplace. Yes, yeah, so But the traditionalists and the boomers are not. For them, uh, a pink slip is something of a cataclysmic event. They don't expect it. They expect to have some sort of comfort and security, and they expect some sort of allegiance from their employer the way they give allegiance to their employer. And if you rattle that cage, it's very easy to measure. Tremendous health outcomes, including death and cardiovascular disease. You can even measure it in the people who were left behind and not outsourced, downsized. 
So there's something about the way we deal with each other, something that we do not understand the biology of, and that probably doesn't have a unifying biology. But if if we want to do something about the health of this nation, it's not um, measure hemoglobin A1C, which is a silly thing to do, but to take a look at the way we treat each other and how we structure our society. Uh, that's a great closing message. Did you have any other, oh, uh, you know, a short list of practical advice you think our listeners should keep in mind? Yeah, I, that, that's what these series of books are written for. The, the most practical advice in terms of their health is to be in a position to make informed medical decisions for themselves, to learn how to ask, how do you know that, what's the basis for this advice, and, and to have the wherewithal to get the, the, the trusting relationships and the time to think through medical decision-making. Because until we have a rational health care delivery system, which is not going to happen in the near future, uh, you're gonna have, we're all going to have to be responsible for asking questions like that. Dr. Hadler, thank you so much for your time today. Good talking to you, Steve. Dr. Hadler is a brilliant physician, and he really has a very important message that just because we have these uh, modern miracle treatments, just because we're able to do certain things like open an artery, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily what we need to do. Uh, he points out that a lot of the excessive health care um, costs that we face today may be due to excessive use of treatments that, that really don't make people any better. I encourage you to read some of Dr. Hadler's work. Again, his most recent book is Rethinking Aging, Growing Old and Living Well in an Overtreated Society, published by the University of North Carolina Press. His previous book was Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in Overtreated America. I'll give you links to his work on our website at webtalkradio.net. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll join us again next time. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Our show is brought to you in part by Leo Pharma. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.